Well, yeah, I mean, they pay us a little bit. Uh, mostly it was, it's a pretty big industry. I mean, it's the largest um, mariculture, so growing, growing oysters, farming oysters uh, in California. We don't have a really big um, oyster mariculture industry here. Like the big, big ones are like in Washington because there's so much bay up there in the Puget mm -hmm. Sound. So, um, but yeah, no one knew much about it. So, and so your background is you were an economy major, or yeah, so I got a PhD. I, I got my undergrad at Portland State, um, in economics and supply and logistics management. So, double majored there, and then, um, Worked for a couple of years for a company and hated it. Uh, That's how that know. goes, right? Yeah, totally. Going into the corporate world and you're yeah. like, I need to get it, out of here. It was awful, you know, and part of it was just circumstance, but, uh, you know, just sitting in a cubicle, staring at a computer screen and Excel spreadsheets and whatnot it wasn't for me. So um, I went back to grad school at University of Missouri, Kansas City, which um, is a really unique economics program there it's got the unfortunate title of a heterodox um, economics program just meaning they they teach a really wide array of different types of theories um and there are only really four of those in the country like i grew up in portland and was born in montana so like i have a west coast elitism that i uh you know nothing cool could be east of the rockies you know um and so I didn't want to go to Kansas City, but it's a very unique uh, economics PhD program. And they actually, I mean, a lot of the people there had been warning about the 2008 financial crisis. And we learned a lot about banking and monetary policy and stuff like that. What um, year were you out there? 2007-ish? Yeah, Alita? so 07. Um, and then I left in 2011, then spent two years in Montana writing my dissertation. I in quotes i should have spent more time writing and less time fishing um but uh uh yeah so i was there from 07 to 2011 which was awesome because that's when everything melted down i mean it you got to see it all play out live yeah and and it's really cool to be at a university i mean i have to remind myself that i mean it wiped out massive amounts of wealth 10 million people were thrown out of their houses i mean these are these are real people. They're not just figures. That's the problem right? with dealing with numbers, right? Is yeah, and it's people also behind it's that. also a problem. I mean, economists should remember that all the time. You know, when we talk about an unemployment rate of eight percent or ten percent, you know, it got up to ten and a half percent following the '08 financial crisis, and you're like, wow, that's a really high unemployment rate. But that's those are real people. Um, so we should always remind ourselves of that. Um, but you know, like I always, when I explain it to my students, um, it was like, it'd be like studying volcanology when Mount St. Helens erupted, you know, I mean, we were trained at this school to think, okay, finance needs to be highly regulated. There are all sorts of issues in the banking sector. You know, these, the, those markets, the financial markets, we can't rely on them to regulate themselves. I mean, that's like, you know, wolves watching the hen house or whatever. Um, and, and then the whole thing implodes, you know, and it's just, I mean, it was fascinating to watch, right? Like the, it, I, when I talk to my students about the 08 financial crisis and it's gotten a lot harder to talk to them about it, 
because, you know, most of these students were five or, you know, weren't exactly paying yeah, attention. I mean, they were tiny when it happened. I mean, they, uh, so it's a lot less relevant, but, um, you know, when I do talk to them about it, it like, they think I'm being hyperbolic when I say it was, it's the greatest crime in human history was the 2008 financial crisis. Greatest crime and nobody really held accountable, None. which is the crazy part. Zero. Yeah. I mean, there was one, this, these numbers might've changed since, but no major banking figure, not only were they not prosecuted, they didn't have to give up any of their own money. And then most of them, I think, Think, I mean, except for potentially some of the bankers, because a bunch of banks were forced to merge with each other. We had this massive consolidation of the banking sector following the 08 financial crisis. Um, you know, Washington Mutual goes out of business, gets gobbled up by, I can't remember, you know, Bank of America. Uh, Chase gets bank gobbled up by J.P. Morgan. You know, some massive consolidation. So you might have had a, a few people that were you know say upper management of one of the banks that got gobbled up maybe they lost their job for a little bit but you know most no one at goldman no one at jp morgan uh none of these people lost any of their own money um and then were making record bonuses a couple of years later right uh, it's it's hilarious because i mean in a tragic sense because, I mean, most of these people are great champions of the free market, you know, and it's like, well, none of you would exist without the trillions of dollars of Fed intervention, the, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that the Treasury threw at the financial crisis. I mean, every, every single major bank in the country either was or would have been very quickly insolvent, you know, bankrupt without major government intervention, you know? And so it makes me laugh when they, you know, go out and champion the, uh, you know, the free Yeah, the, the system's working. Yeah, we the just free, need to stay the course. It's great. I mean, again, and this is like, this is kind of what people are talking about now is that these banks are uh, privatizing profits and socializing losses, right? So when they, when they go bust, who picks up the tab, you know, it's the Fed stepping in, it's some sort of government agency stepping in and making the banking sector whole. So when you make a bunch of losses, no big deal, but you're allowed to, you know, make record bonuses on the upside, right? That's kind of what made me want to reach out to you mm -hmm. is the current banking crisis and the fact that is it a bailout? Is it not a bailout? No, we're just helping these people, but... Yeah, it's a bailout. I mean, yeah. it... it, it it people can get into nuances of this bailout is different than the 08 bailout um in the sense that it looks like anyway and we'll see how it you know ultimately unfolds it looks like shareholders at silicon valley bank which is the the big bank that failed in the US um that the shareholders and bondholders are going to take a hit uh who they really bailed out were the depositors, right? Um, and they made them whole, which, you know. Do you buy into that argument? Do you think that was necessary to do that? Because I've heard it was all this VC talk on Twitter and the push that, oh, if we don't do this, it's going to spark a bank run and then every bank's going to go. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's always difficult to know what the contagion, you know, that's the technical term that the Fed was using. And, you know, they, the Treasury opened up a special uh, or the Fed opened up uh, a special institution so that now a bunch of banks can go and um, access Fed money uh, for 100 percent, 100 cents on the dollar of the assets that they're holding. Um, and so what a lot of that was, a lot of the reason that they do these things is to try to prevent spillover into other banks, which is definitely a problem. I don't know if it was a big problem in this situation, although, you know, I mean, you, you had a bunch of bank stocks that went way down in value following the Silicon Valley bank. Cause that's always the, you know, where people are going to look, they're going to go, okay, this one failed. Who's What's next? next? Right. What's, which is the next one that looks like this? Um, and so I don't really know whether it was necessary. I certainly, you've got a bunch of people that are in positions of power that came out and said, Hey, you've got to backstop all of these deposits. You know, this is going to be systemic. Um, and they're, looking out for the interests of themselves or their their uh their buddies well a lot of them cashed out in the weeks leading up right that was the executives did yeah sure yeah and i mean i don't know whether i'm sure that that'll go into litigation they might have to uh you know pay a bunch of that back and they claw that money back yeah they can legally um you know you got to prove that they knew, you know, that they did it knowing that their bank was going to fail. Um, you know, certainly I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know all of the ins and outs of um, how to claw that all back. But yeah, you can you can sue them for basically insider trading, you know, uh, because you're trading stock on knowledge that it's the public bust. didn't have. Yeah. Right. Um, so and that but that's just the executives. I mean, with uh, most of the like I read an article a couple weeks ago that um, I think it was 13, the 13 largest depositors, right? The 13 largest companies at that bank had $10 billion basically in a checking account. I mean, these are, that is massive mismanagement of your finances as a company, right? You know that only $250,000 is guaranteed to be insured, right? That's the FDIC insurance that we're going to backstop, you know, Will's money because I don't have more than $250,000 in the bank. So I don't worry about, you know, my bank going out of business. My money's backstopped by the feds. Now there's always a clause in FDIC insurance in times of trouble. It's up to $250,000, but, you know, in times of trouble, we can go a lot more. But at the very least, I mean, it was massive mismanagement of the bank. I mean, the the SVP, I could have done it at least as good a job of (laughs) managing that bank, you know. So Uh, for them specifically, it was a liquidity issue that kind of sparked a bank run, Yeah, there were two primary issues. So um, they, on the asset side of their balance sheet, right? Like this is another thing that I try to hammer into my students is if you want to understand banking, you got to understand accounting, right? It's all balance sheet operations. 
So on the asset side of their balance sheet is what they own and what people owe them, right? So if, uh, you know, if I take out a mortgage with a bank, right, they create that money out of thin air. They're not lending me anybody else's money, which is strange to a lot of people because everybody hears, oh, they're just loaning you other people's deposits. We can come back to that. Um, but, right, I go in, I put some money down on a uh, down payment on a house. That's to protect the bank. The They create new money in a mortgage, right? Buy, I buy a $300,000 house, put 10% down. They create $270,000 of brand new money, right? Well, what I owe the bank, what my liability is, is that mortgage. But that's the asset for the bank. That's what they own. That's what they're owed, right? Well, your assets on your balance sheet, your assets are always equal to your liabilities less your equity, right? But if you have zero equity, you're bankrupt by law. So what happened in the Silicon Valley Bank, they had a bunch of long-dated U.S. Treasury bonds, which are the safest interest-earning asset known to human beings. Federal governments never missed a payment. So people thought, oh, okay, it's pretty safe. In fact, a lot of those treasury bonds, if you're holding them, they don't count against risk at your bank. They're right? that secure. Yeah, they're that secure in a sense in that um, for the what regulators – require you to hold in capital or in equity in your bank is against other types of assets, right? My mortgage had some risk. Maybe I lose my job at HSU or Cal Poly Humboldt, which will never, <laughs> never going to roll off the tongue. Um, but there's a risk. I lose my job. I no longer am able to pay my mortgage. Then they have to default, you know, or they have to foreclose on me and then try to figure out if they can sell the house at, you know, a, a value that compensates them equivalent to the mortgage. So there's some risk involved in my mortgage, just default risk, right? Um, for treasuries, there's no default risk unless these morons in Washington decide to stop paying treasury, you know, paying, paying what we owe people. Um, but what there is is interest rate risk. Right. And since it's an asset on the balance sheet, you're holding this thing that looks like it's worth, you know, whatever, for simplicity's sake, let's just say a million dollars. You got a million dollars in U.S. Treasury bonds that are going to be guaranteed, guaranteed to pay you 2% interest or 3% interest over 10 years. And then they give you back that million dollars at the end of the life of the bond. Right. Well, there's no default risk. The federal government literally creates money. So it can't ever not pay the money that it is owed to you. However, what's happened, because we've had high levels of inflation in the last year and a half coming out of COVID, the Fed has started to raise interest rates very, very quickly. All right. Well, when the interest rates go up, the value of those treasuries that SVB was holding goes down. So what you can sell them back into the market for 
goes down. So that million dollar bond, when interest rates were three uh, 3% when I bought it, uh, when interest rates go to 6% or, you know, 5%, now I can only sell that treasure, the, that million dollar bond back into the market for whatever, $950,000, right? So I take a loss there if I have to sell it. Silicon Valley, ha- uh, Silicon Valley Bank had a bunch of those. It was like 50% of their holdings. Were huge there, right? amount, huge amount. Yeah, I don't know what the percentage of their holdings was, but I mean, they were, they had a tremendous amount of long dated, you know, 10, 20 year US treasury bonds that all went down in value because the Fed was increasing interest rates. And then they had a run, which is the, you know, what caused the liquidity problem. So the other side of that, well, I don't know if we want to get into the, you know, nitty gritty of some of the like balance sheet stuff. So when your value of your assets is going down, almost all of your liabilities are fixed, right? They don't change in value. What my bank owes me, what their liability is, is my deposit or my checking account, right? Well, that's fixed, right? I I take out $270,000 that gets deposited into my account. But when the value of their assets starts going down and the liabilities are fixed, the only thing that can change is your capital or your equity in your company. So you have treasuries going down, which is eating up all of your equity. Then you have a flight of depositors pull their money out. That hits both the assets and the liabilities side. They need to start selling a bunch of treasuries to try to fund that the, all the people taking their money out and they're wiped out. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, I mean, one thing that is really interesting about, I mean, banking itself is, it's what allows capitalism to work, right? It's what allows money to be created when it needs to be created. If I, I'm a business and I need to pay my laborers and I'm short on money. I draw a line of credit on my bank. I pay my laborers and then I have more money that comes in at the end of the month or whatever, whenever I sell product, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's what allows people to buy houses. It's, it is the circulatory system of, of capitalism. But one of the big problems is one, we do a horrible job of regulating the banks um, especially the big banks, you know, I don't, your local coast central credit union, I think probably has run pretty darn well. Um, they're, they probably have a lot less risk, but for the big banks, we don't regulate them very well. Um, and, and then they all owe each other money, right? So this is what happened in the 08 financial crisis when, you know, we saw what happened when one bank failed that we actually let completely fail, which was Lehman Brothers. And when Lehman Brothers failed, everything melted down. Like everything stopped. No one was willing to know to lend money to, you know, businesses. No one. I mean, we it, the 2008 financial crisis was just a monumental earthquake. And much of that was because the banks owed 
each other a bunch of money. And if one goes down, it can't pay, you know, Lehman can't pay Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo can't, then can't pay Bank of America. Bank of America can't pay Goldman. I mean, it just cascades. It just cascades. And that's the contagion component of it that the Fed steps in and tries to prevent. And I'm, I'm for bailouts. I, I think, you know, certainly following the 08 financial crisis, it's good to not have the complete and total implosion of the f- banking sector overall. The problem is we should have never let it got, get to the point where you have banks that are too big to fail. If they're too big to fail, there's only one option, right? I mean, they succeed, right? Um, and if, it's, if that's the case, then they're basically PG&E, right? They need to be either totally made public or really highly, like highly regulated, not allow them to have more than, you know, 6% rate of return. If they want to go be an investment bank without any sort of, you know, basically a hedge fund without any sort of government backstop, fine, go do that. But if we're going to guarantee that you're not going to fail, then you guys shouldn't be able to make the astronomical sums of money that you make because there's only upside, right? There's no downside. That's one of the counters to what I've heard with the buyouts is that in doing this, we're just showing the banks, hey, you can go take people's money and play this very risky game and take even riskier chances because you're still going to come out on top. Yeah, You're still so, going to be able to cash out and the deposits are going to be covered and no skin off your back. Yeah. And so it's, again, this is the kind of balancing act because, well, there are a few things. Because bailouts are important in the time that you're having a crisis. You got to calm everything down. You don't want, because you can force good banks to become not good banks really, really quickly, right? So, um, you know, a bank, and this is why I say when in the 08 financial crisis, there were a lot of banks that were not yet insolvent, like Wells Fargo is always championed as this great uh, example of um, being a safe bank during the 08 financial crisis, leaving aside that they've done a bunch of criminal activity since, Um, but they weren't insolvent uh, at the time of the bailouts. They were, and they protested. They said, you know, because the Fed required banks to take a bunch of money, including Wells Fargo. And Wells Fargo said, you know, we don't need this TARP money, you know, the Troubled Asset Relief Program money. We don't need, you know, the however many billions of dollars it was. We're in good shape. Fed said, no, you're taking this. We don't want anyone thinking that you're good and everyone, which means that everyone else is bad. So there's a like, let's calm the markets mentality. Um, but it would have been the case if they didn't create all of that bailout money. We saw what happened when one bank failed. Well, then imagine if Goldman goes next and then JP Morgan goes next and then Chase goes next and then it would have gotten to Wells Fargo because they're holding a bunch of assets that are either, uh, you know, people are, are um, going to become scared of and, the, you know, they're not going to be able to sell them at a, at a, 
normal value at par value is kind of the term that people use. That just means the the exact, you know, initial value of the asset. But then they're also, you know, J.P. Morgan, Goldman surely owed Wells Fargo money. So if Goldman fails, all of a sudden that those assets that were supposed to be paid to Wells Fargo, the assets that Wells Fargo's holding, they don't, those don't get paid. Well, then you have, you know, the equity of Wells Fargo just disappear. It's right. almost like you couldn't get out. It was going to touch you eventually. Yeah. It just was how far down the chain you Yeah, sitting. totally. Um, and so the bail, like, I hate saying that the bailout is a good thing because none of us get bailed out, right? I mean, if I lose my job, uh, you know, the government's not stepping in and saying, oh, well, you we know, got your we'll, back. we got your back here. You can stay in your house and keep paying your car payment and whatnot. Um, but the bailout in 08 was absolutely necessary to just keep the thing afloat. But then what we should have done was throw probably 10,000 people in prison. You know, uh, the level of fraud that was conducted all throughout the lead up to the 08 financial crisis and not just by the big banks. There's a great book um, by David Dan called uh, chain of title, which is all about this rocket docket, you know, foreclosure mills that were happening. And I've read it uh, a couple of times and then listened to it on audiobook like three times. And every time I'm like, this can't, this can't be true. Like if, if 10% of it's true and it's all documented, so it's all true. <laughs> but if 10% of it's true, like the level of fraudulent activity that went on not only in the lead up to the 08 financial crisis, but then as people are getting thrown out of their houses, was it's the largest crime in all of human history, both in dollar value and in number of people participating, right? So you got to throw those people in jail. There have to be penalties of some sort for behaving in that way, right? Um, you ha and then you have to do a lot of re-regulation. And we've done some following the 08 financial crisis. Um, but not enough? Everything gets watered down, right? So, I mean, you can, you can watch as they're writing Dodd-Frank, which is the big uh, American piece of regulation <clears throat> following the 08 financial crisis that, um, you know, requires more strict capital controls, you know, that banks have, hold more equity against riskier assets based on the level of risk in those assets. And, but you can see it just gets watered down as the lobbyists gets their, get their mitts on it. Well, that's another thing with Silicon Valley Bank, mm -hmm. right? Didn't they lobby totally. during the Trump era to have some of those regulations pulled yeah. back? Yeah. So, um, do you think that would have changed anything? I've heard pros and cons on both sides. I don't really know whether it would have changed anything. I mean, certainly regulators, Regulators have fallen asleep at the wheel. I mean, these things are not, uh, they're not new. I mean, we've had major banking panics. You know, we had the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s. We had uh, the failure of a couple of big um, hedge funds that caused a massive banking panic. So failure of long-term capital management. Uh, you know, the 08 financial crisis, all of these things, regulators should have 
been able to catch what we've done really kind of in this era, this, this deregulatory era that goes back to Carter, but really comes to full fruition under Reagan, but then is totally bipartisan. I mean, Clinton did more uh, to deregulate the financial sector than probably any president, you know, in the last 30 years. So it's totally bipartisan because they're all getting paid. They're all getting paid. And they're and there is this underlying ideology that, you know, these people are really smart. They know what they're doing. Let's, you know, let them, you know, if let them figure it out. Right. And um, the Silicon Valley Bank example, yeah, they're lobbying to try to prevent um, regulation uh, under Dodd-Frank because they're kind of, I mean, it's funny. They're the sixth. I think they were the sixteenth largest bank in the United States when they failed. But they argued that they're not so big that they need massive regulatory oversight, um, and they send lobbyists to, you know, prevent any sort of regulation of them and and other banks that are in of similar size. Uh, the big, what are now called GSIBs globally systemically important banks of which we just had another one fail in uh or be bought up uh in Switzerland Credit, Credit Suisse yeah, Credit Suisse got bought up by uh UBS um in a shotgun marriage uh you know those banks are regulated under the Dodd-Frank rules because they're deemed too important too big to fail um, with Silicon Valley Bank, they were not susceptible to the, that type of regulation. But the Fed should still, I mean, you have a bunch, banks have to adhere to a lot of regulation. There's a whole bunch of regulation in place to allow banks to operate, even, you know, your local credit unions. Um, but bank regulate, regulators need to be doing their homework and seeing, look, you know, Silicon Valley Bank had major interest rate risk. And I mean, it, it's almost banking 101 that if you're holding a bunch of treasury bonds on the asset side of your balance sheet and the Fed's going to start raising interest rates, you've got a bunch of risk in that situation, right? And the regulator should have come definitely stepped in and said, look, you know, you've got to hedge against this risk. You've got to start selling some of these bonds before interest rates go up as much as they were. And, it, you know, we've known that interest rates were going to go up. The Fed has been announcing it. It's not been a shock. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's like I would have happily run Silicon Valley Bank as poorly as it was run for the amount of money that the executives got compensated, right? I mean, they just did a terrible job, the executives did, and the, and the regula regulators uh, also did a terrible job. So was it just incompetence that led to that down? Because it's incompetence in and greed. Incompetence, greed. Yeah, I mean. So they, there was no, oh, I didn't see this coming. It was very apparent looking at the balance sheet that, hey, there's gonna be a problem. It's just a matter yeah, of Yeah, and when. I've heard, I haven't looked at internal documents, you know, but I've, I've heard people interviewed, um, Oh, 
Lots. Odd Lots. Have you ever listened to the Odd Lots podcast? It's a fantastic podcast. With Joe Alloway and uh, uh, Tracy Wolfson. I can't. Yeah. Um, but they're great. And they've covered a lot of this. And uh, the, you know, there's apparently internal documents that say, you know, we've got a bunch of interest rate risk here. Um, shouldn't we be hedging against that interest rate risk? You know, you can, there are a lot of ways that you can try to reduce the risk exposure you have on your assets. That's what, um, you know, all of these futures, options, swaps, all of these financial derivatives are, at least in theory, developed to help companies and banks hedge against the risk of interest rates rising or oil price fluctuations or whatever it is. The problem is, is anytime you're hedging against that risk, you're, you're lowering your risk, but you're lowering your returns too, right? So, you know, they, if, I don't know what was in the head of the people that were running Silicon Valley Bank, Valley Bank, but they should have known. I mean, if, if you're a relatively competent banker and you know you have a huge amount of a specific type of asset on your balance sheet, you better be able to find the risk, you know. Well, and again, this isn't some small bank. Yeah. They had, what, $210 billion? You think, okay, yeah, we're trying to see billion dollars in assets. what's going on here. Yeah, and you're a bank, right? And the you're whole, a bank. The whole point in banking is risk evaluation, right? Both your own risk and then the risk of the people that you're generating loans for, right? I mean, it's the, it's the reason that if I go into, uh, you know, Coast Central and want to buy a house – at least since 08, Coast Central probably was doing this the whole time, but at least since 08, people are going to go, okay, do you have a job? How much debt are you holding right now? Uh, how much money can you put down as a deposit? Because a deposit is a security for the bank. It's not for me, right? It, what it does is it creates a margin for safety for the bank in case I don't pay my loan, right? So they require all of this documentation to say, okay, what is this, is Will a credit risk if we create this loan? What's the likelihood that this loan's going to go bad? That's what banks are supposed to be doing. Right? They're risk evaluators. Had there not been that bank run at the start of it, would, would they have been able to, I mean, just sell off the bonds at a loss and cover everything? I don't really know. Um, cause that's the crazy part is it seems like, so you had these VC capitalists saying, Hey, we need to bail out the banks, but they were also the ones that were telling people to pull their money out. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like you're, you're sparking the initial flame, lighting everything on fire and then saying, Hey, this crash, somebody needs to come buy us out. Yeah. So probably what happened was the v the venture capitalists said this bank's in real bad trouble. Noticing and, the direction it was going. Yeah, noticing that they had a bunch they they had a bunch of unrealized losses that they haven't recorded because interest rates went up and the value of their bonds went down. Um and so probably what happened is you had a bunch of the 
the um, venture capitalists said, oh, this bank's going to go bankrupt. We better get our money out. Well, once you start a run, you're, the run goes. You can't right? stop it? No, because, it, I mean, you might be able to – the only way that we've stopped it in the past is by shutting the banks down. Yeah, because who's going to want to risk it and say, right. I'll just, I'll trust them. I'll leave my money in it's there. It's wholly rational. I mean, I'm not going to run on the bank because I know my checking account and my savings account is insured, right? So if my bank goes down, my I get my money. What these companies, I mean, like I said, with Roku, people use Roku as a horrible, you know, mismanagement of finances because they had something like 400 $450 billion in their checking account, in essence. Uh, well, yeah, that's terrible risk management. You should. $450 million. Four, excuse right. me. Yeah, $450 okay. million in their checking which account. Which is insane. Which is insane. Well, it's and it's insane in a whole bunch of different ways because you got to know that a whole bunch of that is not insured in case this bank goes down. Most so, of it. It's yeah. Not, it's I not mean, even like, oh, half like of it. Like 99.9% of your money could could theoretically just disappear. Now, it's probably not going to disappear because most depositors are ultimately made whole once the bank uh, is forced into FDIC receivership because then they sell off a bunch of assets. The first people that get paid back when you know you sell off all of the financial assets that the bank is still holding. Uh, and then the physical assets, right? They have buildings, they have computers and whatnot. So you're going to sell that off. Most most of the depositors were probably going to be made whole anyway. It just would have taken a while for that to you know unfold. Um, but it, yeah, it's a horrible mismanagement of your finances at a company to hold that much money in a checking account knowing that only 250000 of that is guaranteed insured. A whole bunch of it could be locked up until all these assets are sold and then, you know, they distribute it throughout the, uh, you know, the people that are owed money and then shareholders lose their money. If shareholders get paid last, those are when a company goes bankrupt, shareholders tend to be completely wiped out. Bondholders of the bank uh, have seniority over shareholders Bondholders will get paid back if there's anything left over from what you've paid your, you know, your, the people that had checking accounts, et cetera, et cetera. So bondholders usually get uh, a substantial hit. They can be wiped out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not not to mention, like, if you're holding $450 million in a checking account, that's not earning hardly any money if any money at silicon valley bank i don't know what they're checking what they're uh what they were paying their depositors as far as um the interest rates that they were paying for deposits but i mean treasury rates are much much higher right now you you can earn income on treasuries rather than no income on 450 million dollars right so it's just it's just bad management across the board with these companies yeah. leaving the money there yeah. with the people at SVB. Just yep, yeah, and you know, I mean, some of the more established companies, you one can be a lot more critical of them. 
for, you know, I mean, if, if you're Roku or I don't even know who else was, uh, I mean, there were a bunch of tech firms, the startups, I would say, all right, if you're trying to, you know, get your company going, yeah, maybe you, it's a bad oversight, but maybe you're like, I, we're trying to develop this software and get it to market. And so we didn't hire a CFO. We're just a 10 guy startup that's trying to create a new product. And we just figured money in the bank is the same as money in the bank when I was 20 years old or, or whatever. Um, but you know, some of the more established companies, somebody should have said, <laughs> said something to them. Like, this is not a good well, that's the same thing with 2008, right? Is somebody should have been able to connect the dots and say, hey, this is... Yeah, and a lot of people... I mean, there were a number of people that did connect the dots early on. There were just very few people that were listening. What's interesting about 2008 is I've heard that, in reference to Bernie Madoff, that he might have been able to carry on for a few more years or even get away with it had it not been for Lehman Brothers. That there was kind of a catalyst moment. Yeah, I don't do. know enough about Madoff. I mean, I find... Uh, I do like I have a kind of a I guess perverse fascination with uh with you know fraud like with with con artists I find it fascinating like they're just fascinating and everybody there I, I read a book uh a number of years ago I think it's called I think it's called Conned um and in the opening cuz everyone you talk to oh I'd never you know, it, that would never be me that I'm, you know, I'm not susceptible. I yeah, for it. right. I'm just way too smart. And in the introduction of this book, uh, the uh, woman says, like, yeah, everybody thinks that, but that's the beauty of a good con artist is we're all susceptible. They know how to pull at the strings that are going to get you to believe in them to want, you know. Um, and so I should pay more attention to Madoff. Um, but I don't know a tremendous amount about that event, but I mean, he had that going for, you know, decades. Well, it's the same thing in the financial crisis. That thing could have kept going for a long time. We could have, um, you know, as long as housing prices continued to go up, that bubble would have continued to go on, right? Because... And this was one of the reasons that the bubble got so bad was all of the everyone involved, um, from mortgage issuers to individuals that were taking out loans to, you know, um, Fed executives to politicians. Well, we've never had a, a drop in housing prices. Everyone should own a home. You know, interest rates are great. Homeownership is the American dream. And so you say, all right, well, if housing prices can never go down, then at the very least, I can take out a really, you know, the insanity around the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, we were giving out no income, no job, no asset loans. We were giving out, I mean, we weren't the, uh, you know, these mortgage issuing companies were giving out negative amortization loans, which meant you didn't have to make an interest or a principal payment for X amount of years. It just what you owed rolled back into the principal. So instead of, you know, I take out a $300,000 loan and it starts to tick down as I make payments. Well, I don't have to make payments for two years. We're actually going to roll what you owe back into the principal. So then your principal, instead of going down, goes up. I mean, they were giving out uh, loans to anyone and everyone and being rewarded really handsomely for doing so. 
But in most situations, if you take out a mortgage, as long as housing prices continue to go up, I can always sell the house, pay off the mortgage, and pocket that extra money, right? So, you know, if I don't have a job and I take out a half a million dollar loan from the bank, uh, I can just flip that house at $600,000, pay off the mortgage, keep $100,000 for myself, right? So as long as the housing prices continue to go up, the bubble wasn't going to burst. The, the issue was um, that you had they built in enough default so that a bunch of houses, uh, you know, they issued so many loans to so many people that were going to default at the same time that you, at some point, and starting really about 07, I think, the a bunch of houses started to come on the market at the same time. Well, that starts to depress housing prices. We also built in so they would try to get people into adjustable rate mortgages. Um, you know, so you'd these are what they would call teaser loans, where they'd say, "All right, you know, Will, you only make twenty thousand dollars a year, but don't worry, we can get you into a five hundred thousand dollar house. Housing prices only go up." We're going to, it for the first three years, you're only going to have to pay $400 a month, which you can afford. Now, in three years, that mortgage is going to adjust. And they would say, most of the time, they'd say, well, it could just adjust up or down, which was a complete lie. It always went up and sometimes like three, four times what you were paying. Well, if I could pay $400 a month in a mortgage or $1,000 a month in a mortgage, when it goes to $4,000 a month, I can't afford it anymore. So then I got to sell it, right? Which is fine if housing prices go up. But if you have enough people trying to sell houses all at the same time, housing prices are going to go down. And that's what you know caused the implosion. Do you think we are kind of at a similar moment now? When things are going to start imploding, because a lot of people like to draw that comparison and say, "Oh, it's going to be 2008 all over again," except it's the whole economy; the market's just going to tank. Yeah, I, I kind of doubt it. Um, what is your stance on the market overall? The direction of where we're going? Like you were a betting man. So, what do you mean, financial markets, or? Well, or... it seems like from a layman's perspective, it seems like everything is pretty unsustainable right now. High inflation. High home prices, the instability, just politically, it seems like something has to give. And for whatever reason, I would attribute that to just the market tanking. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Things have been kind of going in this trend for a while. You know, housing prices are continuously getting less and less affordable. You know, the average American hasn't seen an increase in their real wage since 1979. Uh, so that's wages adjusted for inflation. Um, 1979, Jesus. Yeah, which is craziness, you know. Um, at a time when we've grown, when our economy's grown at two, two and a half percent per year at that same time. So all of the money is going to, I mean, this is the top, this is the 99%, you know, mantra. This is really, it's, you know, the, the gains are going to the top 10%. And as you go up the income bracket, the gains get even more, uh, you know, uh, even even greater. So the top 1%, the 
makes a hell of a lot more money than they did 30 years ago or 40 years ago, top 0.1%, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, the average American hasn't seen an increase in their wages adjusted for inflation since 1979, right? So it's tough to tell when things are going to implode. Things aren't great. Um, you know, uh, at least pre-COVID, there was a, an article that I read um, that said something like 48% of the population can't come up with a $400 unforeseen expense. I mean, that that's insane. That's two tires on your car. That's a modest vet bill if you have an animal. I mean, and couple that with record debt, record yeah. consumer debt. Yeah. And the debt, I'd have to go and look at the debt numbers because they did go down in COVID, right? People um, started saving a decent bit of money, uh, partly because there weren't as many avenues to go out and, you know, grab a beer and go to a show. Um, also partly because of the unemployment compensation. Um, you know, I think it was an extra $400 uh, a week. Um, and then, you know, they, they created stimulus checks or, uh, for the population of a thousand and then sixteen hundred, $1,400. Right. So that helps people, uh, reduce their overall debt loads. Consumer debt, I think, is probably um, going up now, but I'd have to check the numbers. So. so do you think all that translates to us heading towards a recession? Are we in a recession? It seems oh, like gonna, that's kind yeah, of a I mean, big debate now. I think that uh, we're going to go into a recession. I mean, most of the people that I talk to that are macroeconomists think that you know a, a recession is pretty inevitable. The big debate is how bad, right? Um, and the Fed is trying to push us into a recession. Um, well, that's the whole argument for raising rates, right? Yeah. Is you're trying to crash the economy. It's yeah, just I mean, how hard you want to You're trying to slow it. it down. And they, you know, they always use Fed speak, which is, uh, you know, labor markets are too tight, which just means that too many people are being unemployed. We don't have high enough unemployment, which is kind of a crazy thing to think of. Yeah, when you put it like that, yeah. right? But one of the things that the Fed is supposed to do is to deal with inflation. And inflation, I, I have kind of a nuanced position on inflation uh, relative to most economists. Um, but what is your stance on inflation? It depends. Um, Certainly, if you're on a fixed income, inflation's terrible, right? If you're living on Social Security, inflation is terrible because your benefits are not going to adjust fast enough to inflation. So the value of the money that you have is going down. Um, the so generally speaking, it's it, it's bad for most people because their wages don't keep up enough with inflation, uh, especially as we've had the complete decimation of labor unions over the last 70 years. Um, from an employer perspective, like from a business perspective, inflation is fantastic, all right? As long as it doesn't eat into my demand too much, as long as people don't slow down the purchasing of my products too much. Because, I mean, uh, if I'm a business and a year ago, you know, say I produce shoes or whatever, and I can sell those shoes at $100 a pair, and I sell 
whatever, 100 pairs of shoes uh, a week. Well, this year, if I can continue to sell 100 pairs of shoes a week at $110, I've just made more money. All right. So from a business perspective, it can be inflation can be very good as long as my costs of the materials that I'm, you know, building the shoes with including labor aren't going up faster than my my prices, which they aren't. A lot of there's a lot of corporate gouging going on in this inflation right now. Um where companies are saying, "Look, this is a an environment where we can just raise our prices." because everybody's expecting inflation. So they raise their prices over and above, uh, you know, what is justified to maintain the same profit margin. So their profit margins are going up. They're making more money. That can translate into hiring more people. So also inflation can be really good if you're in debt, right? So um, same kind of example, if I took out $100,000 to um, buy a machine that helps me make shoes, well, that $100,000 is fixed, right? What I owe the bank or whomever I got the loan from is a fixed dollar amount plus interest, right? But that $100,000 doesn't change when we have inflation. Does that make sense? So yeah, then, you lock in your rates. Yeah. You're only paying what you agreed on. Right, and it's like you can also think about it from a house per housing perspective. Right. If I buy a house at $300,000 and the value of houses goes to $500,000, it's not as if my bank goes, well, we're actually changing what you owe us from three hundred dollars to $500,000. No, I, I could sell that house, pay off my mortgage, and I have $200,000 cash in the bank. Right. Same with a business. If I, if I take out debt you know, a year ago, $100,000, to buy a machine that helps me make shoes, and last year, my shoes were selling for $100, and this year, my shoes are selling for $110, as long as, again, uh, my rate of profit isn't m diminished, as long as my costs haven't increased at a level greater than, inf than what my prices have increased, it's actually a lot easier for me to pay down that loan. Does that make sense? Because I'm making $110 instead of when I took out the loan, I was expecting to make $100 per pair of shoes. So, you know, inflation, it's nuanced. Yeah, it depends on what side of the spectrum you're on, right? Definitely. If you're an employer versus the employed. Yeah, except for even with the employed, um, you know, if, if I took out $50,000 in student loans and then graduated in 2018, um, and then we get the inflation of, you know, 21, 22, still 23. Uh, but with that, my income has gone up, right? My wages have gone up because I got to get cost of living adjustments from my, from my work, right? If I can say, hey, look, I need a, I need a raise. Inflation was 8% last quarter or whatever. And so I get a raise. Well, then my real, what we call our real burden of debt has actually gone down. It's become easier for me to pay down that $50,000 debt because it doesn't change. 
But that's again if you're getting those wage increases, right? If you're getting those wage increases. If you're not, then you're e- yeah, everything. Then it becomes harder, right? Because your costs are going up, but your wages are, you know, inflation is hitting your groceries, inflation inflation is hitting your gas. Uh and so you have less left over to be able to pay your, you know, if your wages are fixed, you have less 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 left over to be able to pay your your student loans. So what happens from here, do you think the Fed will achieve a soft landing? That's the big debate, you know. Um, I, I, the Fed's in a real sticky situation because people want them to curtail inflation. What they're trying to do by raising interest rates, and they've raised them really fast, but everybody's known that they, I mean, everybody that's paying attention to interest rates, so not Silicon Valley Bank, but everyone else, uh, they should. You know they know they've known that these rate increases were were coming. Now, so what they're trying to do: increase the unemployment rate, slow the economy down, right? Get some people laid off to try to bring down that overall level of inflation. And when they do that, there's kind of a, a, a colloquial term that people use to say, "Okay, we're going to see what what bends and what breaks," and what broke was Silicon Valley Bank, right? And some stuff's going to break. Some stuff's just going to bend. You know, some businesses, some banks, they're just going to lose a little bit of money. You know, they're going to lay off some people. That's kind of the the hopeful soft landing issue. If a bunch more things break than just bend, that's the hard landing. And, you know. Is there any way to gauge that? Because it feels like a lot of stuff is breaking. I mean, especially with the bank situation so you had silicon valley bank then you had signature bank then you Mm -hmm. had credit suisse is that just are we expecting more banks well i don't know and this is the thing they all anyone holding really any asset almost all assets on a bank's balance sheet are going to the value of those assets are going to go down as interest rates go up so if you when you value a company do a you know just a basic calculation of the value of a company. You discount the future earnings of a company because dollars aren't worth as much in the future. And I could, there's a risk-free rate of return if I could invest in treasuries today. So anytime interest rates are going up, if people think they're going to stay up for a little while, all the value of the assets are going to go down for banks, including treasuries. If, the value goes down enough, we can have serious problems, right? Which is what we had in uh, the Silicon Valley bank uh, situation. And then there's the always the contagion issue because no one knows who's holding what. This was the big thing in the 08 financial crisis is that nobody knew who was holding what of other people's, uh, you know, uh, liabilities. So you can have you can have a situation where one thing fails, which causes this cascading effect, this ripple effect throughout the economy. Who knows? Though? That's the problem. Yeah. Is you can't see it coming. You just gotta yeah. buckle up for the ride. Well, yeah, we do. And you know, I'm sure there are a bunch of I'm sure that at the Fed they're doing a bunch of modeling uh to you know see what uh, they would expect to have happen with interest rates um, increasing. Um, you know, 
who's holding what interest rate risk. But again, they have to they're they have to be actually doing the regulation. They have to have accurate information that if we move interest rates from five to six, this is what is going to happen at that bank, right? So, do you think that push for regulation or desire for the regulation is there? It seems like they're kind of focused with the whole crypto thing now, after the whole FTX collapse. Yeah, do you think that's where most of their focus still lies? There will probably be some amount of regulation that comes out of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. But again, it's almost certainly going to get watered down, whatever ends up happening. Um, and then with the way the news cycle works in this country, uh, a bunch of people forget about stuff, you know? Everything I mean, across yeah, the board. And very quickly. So... You know, if I had a vested interest in preventing um, regulation, I would say, you know, to politicians and whatnot, okay, you know, just stall. Stall long enough until people kind of forget about the Silicon Valley Bank situation. And, you know, then we'll write some regulation and it's not going to do that much. All right. So I don't know. I just don't have, I'm not ever very hopeful that we get robust regulation in most anything because there are so many different vested interests in preventing you know really robust regulation from getting enacted i mean and this is across the board um it doesn't need to be in the banking sector i mean you're talking about you know whatever fda you're talking about the um the train that blew the up railroads, and, yeah. yeah i mean it's they people will begin to forget i mean unless you live in that area. Um, and then, I mean, we can't get clean water in Flint, Michigan, which was, I don't know how many years ago, 10 years ago, 12, I don't even know, right? I mean, you would think in the richest country in all of human history that we could provide clean drinking water as just mandatory to the citizens of this country. but. You know, there's not uh, there's not enough movement. People forget, and then there's too many people that have vested interests in, you know, keeping things the way they are. That vested interest thing scares me, because it feels like everything is for sale, and if you have enough money, you can just buy out anybody. Yeah, well, I mean, but you can, really. Uh, you can. Yeah, I mean, we've legalized corruption in this country. Um, you know, going back to uh, the Lewis Powell memo in the 1970s saying, hey, corporations, you guys really need to take control of this political situation. You know, we get most of our really modern environmental regulation under Richard Nixon, right? Hardly a radical left-wing individual, right? Nixon was extraordinarily conservative, but there was a lot of movement. There was the anti-Vietnam protests. There was a, you know, the m environmental movement was very robust, putting pressure on politicians, and this, uh, who ended up becoming a Supreme Court justice, he was a corporate lawyer at the time, wrote a famous memo called the Powell Memo, Lewis Powell, saying basically that, hey, corporations, if we can just get enough money in the political system, you guys can take all of this back. We can, we'll create think tanks that'll support your position, uh, you know, we'll donate money to 
politicians and political campaigns, political action committees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, with the citizen, the culmination of that was the Citizens United ruling, which said, you know, we can have unlimited corporate uh, campaign contributions. So, yeah, I mean, this, the system is bought for the most part, uh, you know, probably not, I, not definitely not at the kind of lower levels of industry, but the people that are writing the rules. I mean, the people that are at the Federal Reserve that are working for the Fed, I think really want to do a good job at the Fed, right? Uh, the people that influence what the Fed does at the very, very high level, those are the people that are generally preventing, you know, more robust regulation. And then there's a culture. I mean, Timothy, this is just madness to me. Following the 2008 financial crisis, I mean, when I knew that really nothing was going to change under Obama was right after he gets elected, you know, his whole campaign, which, and he's a brilliant uh, speaker, very intelligent individual, um, but when I knew nothing was going to change is when he appointed Tim Geithner, who was the head of the Federal Reserve, literally blocks away from Wall Street when the biggest financial crime in history was going on, who completely failed at his job, right? At the very least, he failed at his job as a regulator of the financial sector. Not only does he not get fired from that position, but he gets promoted to head of U.S. Treasury, right? Larry Summers, who has a long history, is kind of the you know, Darth Vader of, uh, you know, the economy of the last 30, 40, 50 years, uh, did more to try to prevent the regulation of the financial sector under the Clinton administration. Um, he was Obama's chief economic advisor. And it's like, well, you know, once you get to those upper echelons of power, you just fail up, right? I mean, you, you, you get promoted when you, when you fail. Um, so yeah, I, I just don't have a whole lot of hope as far as actual regulation that's going to come out of, uh, you know, any of this, if things get bad enough, that's what has to happen or know, that's historically, that seems like that's when it happens. Yeah, and, shit hits the fan and then change comes out of it. Yeah. And what, I mean, what you get after none of the bankers, uh, you know, get the financial, the 08 financial crisis. None of the bankers go to jail. None of them have to pay anything out of pocket. Some of the banks themselves had to pay, right? But uh, that's not, you know, that's nothing for for the individuals that participated in it. That, that comes out of your corporate revenue, your corporate profits. Um, the, but none of them go to jail. 10 million people are thrown out of their house. We get a okay little bit of regulation, but what really, you know, causes um, issues is the Occupy Wall Street movement and the Tea Party. Now, the Tea Party, at its inception, had, there was a lot of similarity between the Tea Party and 
and the Occupy Wall, Wall Street movement because they just said, look, the system is rigged in the favor of these big you know, corporations, really rich bankers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the Tea Party movement was kind of co-opted later on, but they definitely they had the, the absolute right reason for being pissed off. Um, if you can get that kind of mobilization of the population, then you can get some actual change. I don't know that people care enough to do something like that anymore. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I don't know, though. Like, people obviously care. Each one of, I would say, outside of Biden, Biden was like an election that let's get back to kind of normal, whatever that, you know, like. And look at where we are. Well, That's totally. Normal. No, and, and see, but like, the thing is, I, I have more hope. Because you can explain the rise of both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump from that, from the 08 financial crisis, from uh, the fact that the average American hasn't seen an increase in their real wage since 1979. You go out and talk to most people out there today, left, right, whatever. They think, oh, yeah, the system is screwed up. You know, the it's rigged in the favor of corporations. It's rigged in the favor of the banking sector. Politicians are, uh, you know, just bought. So you don't actually have to convince the vast majority of the population that things are screwed up. And, you know, people forget that Obama was elected on hope and change, right? So what really, I mean, and he steamrolled in both the, Democratic primary and in the general election, yes, we can, we're going to change things, all of these. So, and, and then nothing really changed, right? Um, but I think that if, if, and similarly with Bernie Sanders, I mean, Bernie Sanders started off with 1% of, he was polling at 1% against probably the most powerful political uh, machine in the last 30 years, which is the Clinton, uh, you know, political machine and, you know, almost beat her in the, in the primary. And many would say that, you know, had the democratic national Com committee not had their thumb on the scale against Bernie Sanders, that he probably would have beaten her. Trump also wins based on change, right? That, going to drain the swamp, you know, Hillary's corrupt, lock her up, whatever, you know, whatever that, like, whatever anyone wants to say about any of it, they ran on change. If we could get somebody that had integrity that actually changed some stuff, um, you know, then I, I, I don't know. I, I think that there's more hope for actually changing things because, you, you don't have to convince the vast majority of the population that things need to change, that things are screwed up. So. But that's the easy part, right? Is everybody wants change. Everybody recognizes we need it. But we get these people that sell it to us on sure. paper and then turn around and don't fix or change or do yeah. anything. And it's hard. Uh, I mean, it's hard to, given our system, to to turn the ship very quickly. Um. So, yeah, I mean, it, there's no doubt uh, that 
actually trying to get somebody in power that has integrity, it's very difficult, um, that's willing to, you know, fight for some actual legitimate change. And there's so many issues now. There's Mm -hmm. so many fronts you could say, this is what we need to focus on. I don't know if we would ever get unified enough to get behind somebody that might actually instill that change because everybody's got their own battle that they want to wage. Yeah, maybe. Although there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, the, the media landscape today is so divisive. I think we're deliberately. It's what sells. Yeah, it, it is what sells. And, um, but when you look, like when you talk to, I mean, I spend my summers in Montana. That's where my family's originally from. I have some really, really conservative friends. I'm pretty left-leaning, um, but I have some very conservative friends. First, they're great guys. They're really great people. And, you know, maybe we don't see eye to eye on whatever, gun control or whatever. Uh, but we can always talk about it and I can still end the conversation with, yeah, I, you know, I slightly disagree with you on uh, whatever assault weapons bans and whatever, uh, but we're still friends. Most people, I think, if we would get off the internet so much, if we'd stop trying to communicate, stop stop watching everything that you just agree with, and um, also stop trying to communicate with people in 180 characters or you know whatever it may be. Um, and actually talk to people face to face, I think that'd be a a huge benefit. But then when you look at like polling over a lot of really important issues, most issues, most Americans see eye to eye on, right? I mean, increasing taxes on the wealthy, whatever, 65% issue. That's Republicans, independents, and Democrats, right? Um, You know, raising the minimum wage, extraordinary. I mean, you have a Republican state like Florida that on the ballot raises the minimum wage, right? For the uh, people in the state of Florida, Medicare for all, right? I mean, that, depending on how it's worded, I mean, that's like a 70, 75% issue in this country that, you know, and I do think it's important that, uh, like when I first started teaching here and I would tell students like, hey, do you know that we're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have uh, guaranteed healthcare, single payer healthcare system. I would actually, they would be shocked because of the Sanders campaign. Everybody knows that now, right? So I think there's a lot more things that can unify people than, uh, you know, divide people personally. I don't know. I hope <laughs> so. Well, it's an optimistic stance, right? I want to believe that. I yeah. get a little nihilistic sometimes. Sure. Oh, it's impossible to not. It's get easy nihilistic. to slip into. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, and because you're, you're helpless, right? I mean, they're like, what am I going to do to solve climate change? I mean, if I, you know, lived in a tent and never drove my car and, you know, ate only veggies, it's not going to, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to do my part, but it's not going to do anything to actually curtail, you know, global emissions. But, you know, one thing that I, because I, like I said, I, t- I teach mostly environmental economics classes, which is depressing. I mean, it's just a depressing topic. Um, and one thing I tell my students is uh, get involved, you know, go out and 
Go out and volunteer with something. Get involved with a group doing something, right? Um, whatever. You like, I, I'm a big fly fisherman. Get involved with a group that does river restoration projects or you, uh, you know, you're a surfer. Get involved in a beach cleanup group or whatever you're interested in. If you, you know, want to tackle bigger issues, climate change issues, get involved in groups that are promoting energy efficiency projects or whatever it may be. Because, you, you know, we're getting more and more isolated from each other than ever before. And that's really alienating. Um, I think that's one of the major causes of people's kind of, uh, you know, feeling of, of being down all the time. I don't know, you know, probably not clinical depression, but feeling down, depressed or whatever, is that you just, we're not around each other. We don't talk to each other anymore. Um, and you meet people when you get involved with groups like that, uh, that are probably like-minded people. You make some friends. And then you might actually change some stuff if you get involved with groups, right? So, I mean, I think about it like what uh, – it would be horribly depressing to be for women's rights in 1900. It'd be right? pretty shitty to be a woman in 1900. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, you know, or to be for anti-slavery in 1850 or for desegregation in 1950 or – for, you know, LGBTQ rights and, uh, you know, in my lifetime, right? Those would th seem like things like these are just insurmountable odds. And then they changed. And oftentimes they changed very, very quickly. But they didn't change because of some benevolent leader, right? You have to have uh, somebody like Franklin Delano Roosevelt that is willing to do the New Deal, um, you have to have somebody like Lincoln that is willing to end slavery. If you have somebody that's completely pro-slavery in office, well, you know, you're just not going to get it. But what moves people, what moves those presidents, I mean, the reason we get all of this environmental regulation out of Nixon is not because Nixon liked the environment, although he had some brushings with, uh, you know, enjoying the outdoors. Um but it's because you have a bunch of people that are are mobilized, a bunch of people that are involved in, you know, different organizations that say, you know, we're enough. We need clean water, Clean Water Act. We need to protect biodiversity. We get the uh, Endangered Species Act. We get the EPA. We get all of this legislation out of somebody conservative because people got involved, you know. And ch things can change pretty quickly. I think it's just hard that turning of the ship with how slow it is sometimes. Sure. And especially going back to the train derailment, you have Norfolk Southern being put in charge of the cleanup, which is a very disheartening <laughs> thing. Like, oh, we're going to let the people that did this now be in charge of how it's handled mm -hmm. in the aftermath. You would just wish that things would move a little faster. Yeah, totally. But it's, that's not reality. That's not the world we live in. There's We're in a country of 350 plus million people. You can't just enact these sweeping changes overnight. Yeah, you're not going to. You, I mean, you can do some incrementalism, but you can also get enough, if you get enough people pissed off enough, things can, you know, you can get some pretty substantial legislation that gets passed. So, Have you noticed uh, being a teacher now with the internet, with social media, with chat GPT, have you noticed it's hard to get your students as engaged as it was in the past? 
Are they more willing to connect with you in spite of these things? It depends. And I think my perception is probably skewed because you remember, you always remember the, you know, the students that don't pay attention, right? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly technology has made it more difficult to get students to pay attention in class. Um, but I mean, I, I have some pretty great students too. That I, and I have some students that are really involved in stuff that are, I mean, again, uh, I get to teach environmental economics to a bunch of hippies, right? And most of them are not econ majors. Most of the students come from some other discipline. We have a number of econ majors too, but, um, so, you know, I teach environmentalist, uh, economics to environmental studies, which is in the social science, uh, college of social sciences. I teach students from the college of natural resources, um, business school students. I get a wide array of students and they, you know, some of them are not interested at all. And, you know, maybe that's because my lectures are boring or maybe it's because of the technology. Uh, um, I hope it's the latter, but, uh, no, I mean, I, it, I think it's probably as old as time. You had some students that paid attention a lot and some students that just didn't care. I mean, I, it, my educational background, um, I was a terrible student. I flunked out of community college right after, you know, after high school. Uh, I went to Portland Community College and then moved down to um, Phoenix, Arizona and went to Mesa Community College for a semester. And I just didn't go to class for like a month, you know, and nobody was going to convince me. I mean, both my parents are high school teachers, highly educated, you know, education was emphasized in my household. My sister was like a valedictorian, perfect model, you know, student. And I just didn't care. You know, I was going to go snowboarding with my friends or I was going to go, you know, play golf or shoot hoops or anything to not go to class. And then, you know, my dad cut me off. He was like, we're not... <laughs> You know, that'll do it. It will do it. And, you know, he was like, you have until the first of January to get the hell out of this house and go back and find a job and, uh, you know, take some time off of school, but we're not paying for you to get <laughs> bad grades. <clears throat> and, uh, it was the best decision that he could have made. And then when I went back to school, I was motivated. So, you know, I mean, I, there are a lot of students that I think just, this is their first time away from home. You know, the this place is crazy and has lots of cool outdoor opportunities. There's, you know, lots of different music and partying and, you know, stuff like that. So that contributes to it, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, the technology doesn't help um, keep, keep students' attention. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, it's hard to engage with schoolwork when you can just scroll your phone for a couple hours for sure hit, yeah. get that dopamine hit yeah and that that issue um i mean i have a number of students that like will do some other classes homework at least they, it looks like they're doing some other classes homework in class their laptops up and they're typing away on the computer um but yeah the the stuff of like looking through instagram or tiktok tiktok facebook whatever i mean that stuff is just mindless uh, I wish everybody would just put that shit away. You know, it's a complete waste of time. Um, for most of it, I mean, the the internet's a, a an interesting beast because 
there's so much, we have access to so much more information for free than we've ever had before. And then you can scroll through TikTok videos that are, I don't even know what, you know, six seconds long and can occupy, I mean, for the record, I don't have a take <laughs> I don't do the TikTok thing, so I shouldn't, I don't, I'm not speaking from experience, but like the, it's a complete mindless waste. Waste of time suck. Yeah, it's a waste of time. Go out time and talk suck. to somebody or learn the guitar or start a podcast or, you know, do something a little bit more creative in my opinion. Um, plus it's just a, I mean, it's a tremendous waste to not learn some stuff in college. Like I don't think people realize how lucky they are to be in college and all of this. I mean, I'm a hypocrite because all of what I'm saying right now, when I was 19 would have fallen on deaf ears. I'd have been like, whatever dude, you know, uh, I'll do whatever I want, but um, but pretty lucky to people that are in college are pretty lucky to be in college. Not only for the general population in the United States, but you start thinking globally how many people would die to be able to go to college, and you're just wasting it. You know, you're wasting your time and somebody's money. All right, might as well stop going to school and go out and get a job or do something different. Do something that stimulates you. You know. Is that what made you want to go back as you started, you got that job and you realized, man, this kind of sucks. I yeah. So, school. so yeah, I, well, I was, uh, an avid golfer spent, I grew up working at golf courses and, um, is one of the reasons I moved to Arizona's son and good looking girls and, uh, and golf. And, um, so I got a job at a golf course when I was in Arizona, uh, at a really, really fancy golf course in Scottsdale. And it was really fun when I was doing it. You know, I was, uh, 19 at the time there were 25 guys that were all working, you know, basically customer service, scrubbing people's golf clubs and stuff like that. Uh, and there were 25 of us. We all made tips every day. So we all had some cash in our pocket that we could, what our paychecks would take care of rent and uh, utilities. And then we always had cash to go out and grab beers or, or, you know, go to the movies or whatever. And so, you know, we just partied. We had a lot of fun going out and it was a great, great time. We got to play free golf at a beautiful golf course every day if we wanted. Um, and then I had a buddy who was, uh, also worked with me. His folks lived on this golf course and, um, they were kind of my surrogate family. And one day his, his, uh, I used to go over to their house when my buddy wasn't there, you know, just hang out. And one day I went over and his dad said, you know, go grab a beer, grab me a beer, grab you a beer, meet me in the, you know, in the backyard, we'll have a beer. And so I did. And he said, you know, enough's enough, dude. He's like, it's great. You're having a good time. He's like, but you need to get your ass back in school. Uh, you don't want to be scrubbing golf clubs when you're 40 years old. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like, no, absolutely not. He's like, you can live here if you need uh, a place to live or whatever, but next semester you're going to be in school. And I was like, okay. And so I did. And then I, you know, I was really lucky. I went to Scottsdale community college and I had to pay my own way back into school until I got above a three, five. And then my folks would start helping out, um, you know, they'd pay tuition and help, uh, help with living expenses. 
as long as I maintained above a three, five GPA. Um, and when you pay for your own stuff, you, you know, uh, you value it a little bit more, uh, at least initially it was for me. And then I had some killer teachers and it also that first semester that I was, um, at Scottsdale community college, uh, nine 11 happened, which was a really influential moment in my life. Uh, just because it started getting me curious about what the hell, you know, curious about politics, global affairs. I was taking a, uh, an intro to political science class at the community college, you know, political ideology class. And it was taught by this real libertarian, uh, dude that was, you know, it was very basic. Like he equated, uh, you know, capitalism and freedom and democracy were all synonymous socialism on the socialism on the left was totalitarian and that's Stalin, you know, fascism is on the right and that's Hitler in Germany, but which are essentially the same thing. And I was like, that doesn't, that's weird. I don't really get that. Uh, but then he put up an overhead on, uh, the, the next class period after nine 11, you know, this is like transparencies, right? Pre PowerPoint days. Um, of people jumping off the World Trade Center as it's burning. And he was like, this is why political ideology is important. He's like, people fly planes into buildings because they hate your freedom. And I was like, man, that's, that's odd. You gotta really hate freedom to fly a plane into building. It just didn't make sense to me. You know, There's gotta be more to this than, than that. So I just started reading. Um, and then I guess the rest is kind of history. I just I always had really great professors in economics, um, in the business school at Portland State, uh, just really awesome professors that made the world interesting. And so I've always just kind of since then had an intellectual curiosity about stuff. Sometimes it takes somebody shaking you like that and saying, sure. hey, wake up a little bit. Yeah. What are we doing? What's our plan? Yeah. Where are we going? I mean, it, it was... It was two things. I mean, because it took my dad's a hard ass. I mean, he's a he's I love him to death. He you know great um, father figure, uh, but he was also kind of a disciplinarian. You did chores. You showed up on you know five minutes early. It was always you know if you're if you're five minutes early, you're ten minutes late type of uh, type of type of guy. And always you know it was not hypocritical. Put his money where his mouth is. He was really disciplined. Worked very very hard. Um, and, but, you know, it would have taken him and did take him to cut me off and just say, you're done. We're not, cause I would have gone to another semester of school and I could have convinced my mom. She's also kind of a hard ass, but she's more, I, I could have pulled on her heartstrings a little bit more than him. You know, he was just like, enough is enough. You've done this for, you know, a couple semesters and I'm just pulling the, you know, pulling the string, um, which was one of the most important decisions somebody else made about my life. And then, yeah, my buddy's dad telling me to get back into school was another one because I don't know how long I would have just continued on. So I uh, wanted to drop out numerous times. And I came home one time, I think it was like Thanksgiving break. And I told my parents, I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to go back. I think I'm 
done with school and they kind of just look at, looked at me and chuckled and were like, yeah, you're going back. Like we're doing, I had already transferred three times. So I bounced around a little mm-hmm. bit and I was like, I think I'm done. I think this is the mm-hmm. last stretch for me. And they kind of gave me that forceful nudge of, yeah, you're going to, you're going to do this, which panned out. I mean, it is, it's an important thing and you don't really get that sometimes when you're in the thick of it. And like, yeah, it's a really tough one this. when you're young and you know, this is something that I, Sometimes have to convince students if we talk about it. Definitely have to convince some students about it. But, um, you know, degree now, unless you're really good at a trade, like unless or you know, you have some sort of real business savvy, you can open up a business. What a degree does is it allows you the potential of getting into the middle class. It doesn't guarantee it anymore. It used to, right? I mean, uh. But a lot of employers, at least, you know, maybe a little different now that the labor market's tight, um, but a lot of employers require a college degree just in the application process, even for jobs that definitely don't require a college education. It's just a filtration mechanism, right? They'd rather read 350 applications than, you know, 3,500 applications for a job. Plus, there's an element, okay, not only are they going to be more educated, they're going to be a better writer, but they also are probably, if they got a degree, they at least can stick with something. Um, but the, you know, a, a college degree anymore in a general field, if you're going to go into engineering or like, you know, wastewater engineering, you want to hire somebody with a wastewater engineering degree, right? Somebody's going to build bridges, whatever. Uh, but you know, for a lot of general degrees, um, the you, you can get hired in a bunch of different areas. You get a degree in economics, you might not get hired in, you know, in in a bank or, you know, doing economic analysis of, uh, you know, uh, for the government or the Fed or whatever. You might go sell insurance. It's just a thing that says, hey, we're going to let you into this class of jobs. The big issue with that is that the college degree has really become a high school degree, like what a high school degree used to be, which was entrance into the you know middle class work, middle class jobs. And many of the jobs that used to only require a high school education now require a college education. Um, and yet we make students pay for college. Right. An exorbitant amount. An it's exorbitant. not even just like, oh, you got to pay a little bit. It's you, you're going to fork over an arm and a leg for yeah. this. And you're going to go into a bunch of debt that you can never walk away from. Do you think that's turning it. a lot of people off the college route? Because you have the student loans, which are so high, and people feel like, well, why do I need to go to college and go into all this debt when I can just go work some some basic job. Yeah, probably some. I mean, I'm I'm sure and I'd have to go look at the numbers, but I'm sure that you're seeing a shift in more, a lot more people probably going to community college first. Um which is good. Which everybody should do. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, yes and no. I mean, I I agree with you cuz I had a great community college experience and some of my best professors were at community college. They weren't there to do research. They were there to teach. They most almost all of them loved teaching 
that's the only reason you're at you know a community college is because you, there isn't a research requirement. You're you're at a community college because you want to teach. You're not making a a lot of money, and you're, you're not making a ton of money. Yeah. yeah. Um. And there are a lot of I had have had awesome professors at as an undergrad too. So it's not necessarily the case that community college teachers are all awesome and you know graduate or PhD program they're going to be they're going to be bad. Um. There's just more emphasis at the four year university or places that have masters and PhD. There's more emphasis on research and and some people really like doing research but really don't like teaching at a four-year university. Now at uh, HSU or Cal Poly Humboldt, the the emphasis is more on teaching. So like we ha my the faculty members uh, at that university, I think there are a lot of awesome awesome teachers but you know you get into more of these research and based institutions i think i would guess that the the teaching quality um teaching quality goes down so as far as community college goes yeah students should go it's it'll save you some money but on the other hand and you can have a you know great educational experience and all of that on the other hand there's more to college than just academics right i mean you're going to meet lifelong friends people that you're going to stay in contact with there's all sorts of um activity i mean if most people that go to community college probably i mean i did for a year probably live with their folks to save some money probably it's in the local area uh, you know uh where they grew up which is all fine and good but you going to a four year university that's in a different location than where you grew up, you got to make all new friends. You got to learn what's cool about that area. Um, you know, you are thrown into adulthood, right? You're going to learn that if when they send you the pink notification from PG&E, the next one is no power left. <laughs> you know, they're going to turn your power off. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, you just you have the ability to go out and experience the college, like a true college experience, which I think is important. It gets, obviously gets people in trouble, you know, because they don't go to class and uh, you end up partying too much and staying up and playing video games and, you know, shit like that. The thing that I would always, uh, that I wish I could convey to any incoming student, or I guess any, any student that wants to do any, wants to do better is you can do it all. Right. You can play video games with your friends, you can go party, and you can get really good grades. It's just about time management. You know, that that was the biggest thing when I got back into school and started doing really well was, oh, I just gotta organize my time better. I can go out and party with my friends and I can go shoot hoops and I can still read what I need to read, write what I need to write, go to class, get pretty good grades. Allocation of resources. You got to figure out how to put all the puzzle pieces together. It yeah. doesn't have to be all or nothing. You don't have to no. be at the library till 4 a.m. every night. No. Studying. And actually, I mean, for me, I would just, the biggest thing was I just set aside a chunk of time for schoolwork every day, depending on my schedule, you know. And I would go to a coffee shop from whatever, 12 to 3, and I would sit there from 12 to 3 and do work. And then it was like, all right, once I've done that, I've taken care of all my homework. I've, 
you know, started a paper. I've read the chapters that I needed to do every day. And then after that, it was going to class, pay attention. Then you could, when you were done, yeah, go, go out, have dinner, you know, drink some beer with some friends and, you know. It is a very unique experience. It's kind of the only trial into adulthood that you get. For sure. Because if you stay home, even if you're working or just living in your hometown, you don't get, you miss out on all of that. Even if you just move to a new area, you still miss out on that because mm-hmm. you're not with kids your own age totally. in this designated area doing these similar things. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it's a unique, it's a really unique experience. You, and you. Unique, but the price is definitely. It's expensive. It's, it's out there. Yeah, I mean, it's expensive. Um, it, it's criminal what students get charged for college educations you know and it's going to go up it's always going to go up that's I mean, the crazy just, part is it's never it's yeah, not going to start going back yeah. down i mean uh it's funny when like baby boomer generations complain about younger you know young generations now i'm always like you guys are the most entitled generation in all of human history you know don't yell at young people for not being motivated. Yeah. They should get off TikTok and, you know, be a little bit more disciplined and they'll say the same thing about generations after them. But, but like the baby boomer generation is the most entitled generation in all of human history. I mean, you had low unemployment for all of the fifties and sixties. I mean, the fifties to about 1973 are the golden age of American capitalism, right? That's where you had a really robust middle class. You could ha- get a, a job punching rivets with a high school education or not even a high school education at your local GM factory, earn a good wage, one income earner in the house. You could buy a house. You could have a boat. You had a pension, um, low levels of inflation at that time. Uh, college education was basically free. Uh Social safety nets were a lot more robust, right? I mean, we've gutted a lot of the social safety nets in this country. And so, yeah, it just makes me laugh. And, you know, when baby boomers criti- uh, critique young people for complaining too much, it's like, yeah, well, you guys you guys had everything you wanted. Yeah, you know, you had the threat of the Cold War and nuclear holocaust and kind of scary stuff, but... It all panned you know, out. Oh, yeah. You guys made I it mean, through. For everything, everything else seemed pretty decent. So. Yeah, we're in, a, we're in an interesting time. Oh, there's no we're doubt about it. We're in an interesting it. time. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, it's, it is... Yeah, I mean, that's that uh, old Chinese curse. Right, is may you live in interesting times, right? Because interesting times are kind of freaky. You never yeah. know exactly what's going on. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what, you know, see what, where these things go. Yeah, we will. Well, Will, thanks, man. This yeah, was a bet. lot of fun. I appreciate yeah, you coming I enjoy on talking it, with for me. For sure, for sure. Do you want to plug anything where people can find you? Any no, research I don't have, you? I mean, I don't have any, uh, uh, I don't no, do the Instagram or, or, uh, uh, Twitter or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I'm just, uh, up at HSU teaching, uh, anybody can, if anybody wanted to reach out and email me, my emails at the HSU economics website and yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks, but we'll, uh, we'll definitely have to get you back on. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Anytime. Thanks, man. All right.